Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I see a few people standing in the back. There is a space that is a screen in the Great Hall for those of you who'd like another venue for listening and seeing the talk. On behalf of the Graduate Council of the Academic Senate, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you today to the second of two Hitchcock lectures to be given by Professor Richard Dawkins. The Hitchcock Endowment Fund was established from a bequest made by Dr. Charles M. Hitchcock in 1885 to institute a professorship at the University of California for free lectures upon scientific and practical subjects, but not for the advantage of any religious sect nor upon political subjects. Through a generous bequest from his daughter, Mrs. Lily Hitchcock Coit, the Hitchcock Endowment Fund was enlarged considerably in 1930, allowing the university to liberalize the terms of professorship and to extend the period of residence of its holders. The fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, sustaining and encouraging recognition of the highest distinction in scholarly thought and achievement. Professor Richard Dawkins is currently the Charles Simonier Professor of the Public Understanding of Science at New College, Oxford. He came to Oxford in 1959 as an undergraduate and eventually studied under Nico Tinbergen, the eminent Danish biologist. After teaching zoology at Berkeley for several years, he returned to Oxford, where he ultimately became a fellow at New College. Professor Dawkins has received numerous awards and honors. He was the recipient of the 1989 Silver Medal of the Zoological Society of London. He also received the 1990 Royal Society Michael Faraday Award for the furtherance of the public understanding of science. In 1994, he won the Nakayama Prize for Human Science, and in 1995 was awarded an honorary D.Litt by the University of St. Andrews. He has also been elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Professor Dawkins is also a prolific author. He has written numerous international bestsellers, including The Selfish Gene and The Blind Watchmaker. When he published The Selfish Gene in 1976, the book raised serious debate over whether humans were ruled more by nature or nurture, and how these behavioral traits related to genetic factors. In the lecture today, entitled The Gene's Eye View of Creation, The Selfish Cooperator, Professor Dawkins will present his own view of these startling and fascinating questions that he has vigorously studied for well over 30 years. Without further delay, I am pleased to present to you Professor Richard Dawkins. center of Darwinian explanation. I'll continue to defend this stance, but it's important not to misunderstand it. 
In particular, we mustn't underestimate the organism. We're getting ringing. Uh, can we maybe turn the volume down a bit or? Okay. Despite my advocacy of the gene as a unit of selection, I would obviously be mad to deny, that's mad in the English sense, meaning insane, rather than meaning angry. <laughs> I would be insane to deny that the individual organism is an important unit of something. The organism behaves as a unit. It takes decisions as a unit, moves about as a unit. Every sinew and muscle is coordinated in what appears to be unity of purpose. But however much we may agree that it is a unit of something, the organism is not a unit of selection in the same Darwinian sense as the gene is. It is not a competitor of the gene as a candidate for the unit of selection. It's a unit in a completely different sense. The gene is a unit in the sense of replicator. The organism is a unit in the sense of vehicle for replicators. We have to acknowledge these two kinds of units, replicator and vehicle. And you can think at either level. Both are simultaneously valid. If you want to talk about the unit that actually survives or fails to survive in natural selection, you are looking for a unit in the sense of replicator. And as I argued in last week's lecture, that in practice is usually the gene. The organism is emphatically not a replicator in that sense. If you prefer to think of the organism as your unit of discussion, then you mean unit in some other sense, the sense of vehicle. This is a very important kind of unit, not to be denigrated, but also not to be confused with unit in the sense of replicator. That column shows a list of allegedly candidate units of natural selection, units for which natural selection can be said to benefit something. It's a bad list because the bottom one doesn't belong there. The bottom one belongs out to one side because it is a unit in this different sense. So the great mistake is to see the gene and the organism as two different rungs on a ladder of organization. They're not rungs on a ladder. All the other things may be rungs on a ladder, but the gene as a replicator belongs out on one side. replicator is anything of which copies are made. An individual organism is not a replicator because copies of it are not made. And this is true even of things like aphids, which reproduce clonally. On the face of it, it looks as though an aphid is a copy of its mother, but it isn't. Its genome is a copy of its mother's genome, and both genomes are causal products, sorry, both phenotypes, both the, the aphid bodies, both mother and daughter, are causal products of the uh, genome which they, as it, as it happens, share. A quick way to determine whether a unit is a true replicator is to ask what happens to blemishes, to mistakes, to mutations. If an aphid loses a leg, needless to say, its daughter isn't born one leg short. But if it 
if a gene changes in the genome of an aphid, then its daughter will indeed inherit that. And that's crucial. That's, what, that's where the, the distinction really lies. George C. Williams, whose 1966 book, Adaptation and Natural Selection, was a seminal exposition of the gene's eye view of selection, has returned to the matter in this newer book, Natural Selection, Domains, Levels, and Challenges. And his way of singling out the gene from all those other things in the vehicle column of my slide is to coin the phrase codical domain as opposed to material domain. A member of the codical domain is a codex. The point is that the entity we're talking about is not a material object. DNA is a material object, it's a material molecule. But the codex is the coded information which is embodied in the nucleotide sequence of that DNA. And it is the codex which is the replicator, it is the codex which passes uh, unaltered or occasionally altered by mutation, which is important, down the generations. So just to summarize that, then, we have these two kinds of unit, uh, replicator and vehicle. The gene is sorry, difficult to use the mouse on this little table. Right. Um, a, a gene is a unit in the sense of replicator. Organism is a unit in the sense of vehicle. And they maximize different things. If you're talking about the gene as your unit of discussion, what it maximizes is its own survival where own refers to the codex. If you're talking about the organism, what it maximizes is most certainly not its own survival. On the contrary, it may sacrifice its own survival for the sake of the survival of the replicators, the genes which it bears. What it maximizes is a complicated mathematical function called inclusive fitness. Fitness is a difficult term, and I have to go back a little bit into its history. It comes from the catchphrase, survival of the fittest. Darwin didn't invent the phrase survival of the fittest. Herbert Spencer did. Darwin was persuaded to adopt it by Alfred Russell Wallace, his co-discoverer of natural selection. Wallace, uh, Wallace's reasons for persuading Darwin to change from natural selection to survival of the fittest, as his catchphrase, ring sadly true today. It is that many people can't resist personifying. If Darwin spoke of nature selecting, people couldn't resist thinking of deliberate choice. Show them a metaphor and they just don't get it. They take it literally and we have the same trouble of course today. Darwin agreed to adopt Spencer's phrase, although he shrewdly remarked, I doubt whether the use of any term would have made the subject intelligible to some minds. <laughs> But neither Darwin nor Wallace foresaw how later generations would struggle over the meaning of fitness. When Darwin and Wallace first adopted Spencer's phrase, fitness meant something very close to what we mean by athletic fitness. The fittest individuals were the ones that ran fastest or had the keenest eyes or the smartest brains or whatever it was. 
But later, mathematical geneticists needed a technical term for that hypothetical quantity which an individual can be said to maximize. They lit upon fitness, which in effect was to, def was to dis define a term such that the phrase survival of the fittest became a tautology. That was the, that was the um, word they sought. The fact that survival of the fittest now is a tautology has been used, and I'm not joking, as ammunition against the whole idea of evolution. This is almost too stupid, even by creationist standards, but I'll briefly pause to deal with it. It comes from a little learning, but not enough, in philosophy. As you all know the quotation from Alexander Pope, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deep or taste not the Pierian spring. Their shallow drafts intoxicate the brain, and drinking largely sobers us again. Take this gem of a remark from the Nobel Prize winning zoologist Sir Peter Medower. The spread of secondary and latterly of tertiary education has created a large population of people, often with well developed literary and scholarly tastes, who have been educated far beyond their capacity to undertake analytical thought. <laughs> so, to the great tautology red herring. Here's a parallel case. High velocity horses take less time to cover a given distance than low velocity horses do. That is a tautology. It's what velocity means. But this doesn't mean that running speed is an uninteresting or unimportant quality in a horse, a quality that repays attention. You can breed for it, you can bet on it, you can devise training regimens to foster it, you can make your fortune through it. Fitness has been redefined in a technical sense, rather as velocity has. So back to uh, the various definitions of fitness. A further complication was that historically the technical term fitness having been defined in this technical sense, was then split into two different but connected meanings. Population geneticists apply it to a genotype at a locus. If there are two genes, big G and little g, at a locus, the geneticist will express the fitness of each of the three genotypes, big G, big G, big G, little g, uh, little g, little g, in terms of each other, often standardizing one as having a value of one. And we can call this genetic fitness. But at the same time, ecologists and ethologists, students of animal behavior, who study whole organisms, who study what I call vehicles, started to use fitness in a somewhat different sense as a name for a quantity which the individual organism is expected to maximize. And you can see that that's different. Individual fitness is not the same thing as genetic fitness. It can be thought of as an average of the genetic fitnesses averaged over all the genetic loci of the organism. And this is justified by a kind of convention that an organism is expected to have the interests of all its genes at heart. And that really is only a convention. I justify 
that I, I will justify a, a form of it later. Conversely, the genetic fitness of a genotype, such as big G, little g, can be measured by averaging over all the individuals in the population who possess that genotype. So they're kind of reciprocal uh, definitions. A further complication is that individual fitness itself is used in two slightly different ways. The genetic fitness averaged over an individual organism's loci is a measure of its potential reproductive success. You look at an organism, you look at the genes that it's got, and you say, it is equipped to survive well or badly. That's its potential individual fitness, which is not the same as its achieved individual fitness, which you measure at the end of its life when you tot up the number of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that it has managed to achieve. You see, I'm building up a list of different meanings of fitness to, to show what a confusing term it is. I mean, I'll finally come to inclusive fitness, which I mentioned earlier, and which is W.D. Hamilton's ultimate refinement of the concept of fitness. In my last lecture, I mentioned Hamilton and his realization that natural selection would favor a gene that programmed bodies to behave altruistically towards other individuals with a high statistical chance of sharing the same gene. And this normally means close relatives. Hamilton's rule states that a gene for altruism will spread through a population if RB is greater than C, where C is the cost to the altruist, what it pays in order to benefit the other individual, where B is the benefit to the other individual, supposedly a relative, and where R is the so-called coefficient of relationship, which is a fraction which conveys the number of genes held in common, the proportion of genes held in common, identical by descent. Hamilton's rule is straightforward if we adopt the gene's eye view. You can quickly uh, think about a given situation like this lion looking after its niece or its nephew and calculate whether a gene for looking after a nephew will spread by simply substituting, I say simply, of course, measuring these quantities is very difficult, but in principle it, it's simple to substitute R, B, and C, and if R, B is greater than C, then the gene will spread and you will see the altruistic behavior. If it does not spread, this could be because R is not big enough, or is perceived as not big enough, or it could be because B is too small, or because C is too large. Now, Hamilton, as I said, ad adopted his, his rule, and it's very straightforward from the genes eye view. But Hamilton realized that the audience for whom he was writing, well, those are some values of R, by the way, the coefficient of relationship, um, the, the, the fraction expressing the closeness of relationship. So you'd expect um, a, uh, a lion to look after its niece if um, RB is greater than C, given that R is a quarter. There is Hamilton uh, on one of his many expeditions to the Amazon. He realized that the audience for whom he was writing was deeply imbued with the organism's eye view. Hamilton himself had the gene's eye view, but he knew that he was writing for an audience that had been brought up on the organism's eye view. 
Evolutionary biologists were used to the idea that the individual organism was the maximizing agent. It was the individual organism that took the decisions, and after all, in practice, it is. So, traditionally, the quantity which the individual organism was supposed to maximize was its Darwinian fitness, which was assumed to be uh, something like its uh, potential for producing children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Hamilton, having realized that it wasn't only lineal descendants that counted, but nephews and nieces and cousins and brothers and sisters, etc., set himself the task of redefining fitness into inclusive fitness so as to accommodate the new realization he'd made that collateral relatives counted. I have facetiously defined inclusive fitness as that quantity which an individual organism will appear to be maximizing when what is really being maximized is gene survival. Hamilton's own definition is more carefully phrased and it's often misunderstood even by professional biologists. I hope you won't mind if I become a bit teachery and spell out in a little more detail than I normally would for a general audience. What we're trying to do is to write down a mathematical function which is what an individual would maximize if what it was it's quotes trying to do was increase the long-term survival of copies of its genes. To simplify the language, I shall assume that the individual concerned is me. It just gets the pronouns a little bit easier. So my inclusive fitness is going to be some function of my own reproductive success, my own, my personal reproductive success, and the reproductive outputs of my relatives, each one devalued by R, the coefficient of relationship. And at first sight, you might think that it's rather simple. You take my own reproductive success and simply add my relative's reproductive success devalued, that's to say, multiplied by the proportion R. This cannot be right. It leads to an absurdity which undercuts the usefulness of inclusive fitness as a measure. If my brother, say, says that we're talking about altruism towards my brother, if my brother migrates to the other side of the world and has a huge family with absolutely no help whatever from me because I'm not around, it's not sensible that his offspring should be credited to my inclusive fitness account. We're trying to calculate the natural selection of genes that cause individuals to take action in favor of their relatives. So just having relatives in Australia, say, without helping them or impinging on their lives and reproduction in any way is not what this is about. So we have to insert my effects on my relative's reproductive success. Now that's certainly an improvement to our definition of inclusive fitness, but it's still not enough. The problem that remains is double counting. If there's a Darwinian rationale for me to help my brother to reproduce, then there's similarly a rationale for my brother to help me. So the first term in my equation, my personal reproductive success, the, the upper term, can't be used in its entirety. This is because some fraction of my reproductive success, my own offspring, has already been contributed by my brother's help, my relative's help, to me. So we have to subtract 
my relatives' effects upon my personal reproductive success. And this is, uh, in my simplified form, this is Hamilton's definition of inclusive fitness. It is a bit complicated, and I think the complications arise only because of Hamilton's desire to end up with a quantity inclusive fitness, which was an attribute of the individual organism. You only need to do this if you insist upon seeing the individual organism as the uh, maximizing agent. If you could only liberate yourself from that and switch entirely to the gene's eye view of evolution, it all becomes much simpler. You simply ask, what qualities a gene for altruism needs to have in order to spread through the population? And the answer comes back to Hamilton's rule. Those are, that's Queen Anne surrounded by workers who are sterile and who are working their socks off to ensure the reproduction of the queen. That's to say to bring into the world uh, sisters and brothers of, of reproductive sisters and brothers who are going to carry on the genes um, which are making them do the work in the first place. While I'm in teacher mode, I, I'll just deal with one other much misunderstood point. What does it exactly mean to say that, for instance, R, coefficient of relationship, is a half between brothers, or a quarter between aunt and nephew, or an eighth between first cousins? And this is easily misunderstood, because you will all have seen statements to the effect that we all of us have 99% of our genes in common. So what on earth does it mean to say that brothers have 50% of their genes in common? The, the best way to understand this is Alan Graffin's geometric view of relatedness, which I won't have time to go into, and as I've written the reference, if anybody is keen enough to want to look, look it up. Um, I'll, and I'll leave it up there while I try to give a brief intuitive idea of what it really means to say that, a, that the coefficient of relationship R is 50%. There's a lazy way to answer this problem. If the gene we're talking about happens to be a rare gene in the population, then it very nearly is literally true, it approximately is true, that the chance of sharing it with your brother is 50%. Because if it's a rare gene, then it doesn't come into that 99% that we all have in common anyway. The, but it's lazy because mostly we're not talking about rare genes. A better way to view it is to say, given that all the members of the species share whatever it is, 99% of their, 98% of their genes, for example, 50% for siblings, expresses the proportion of the remainder that are identical over and above the baseline. By the way, it's not 99% if you count whole genes. It's a matter of whether you count nucleotides or whole genes. But you get the point that um, however, however you do it, it's going to be some high number for every member of the population. And the figure for brothers or cousins is higher still. The, the, the R fraction is in some sense the cream on top of the milk, which is the, the sort of residue which we all share in common anyway. And that's a, an over-simple way of putting it, and I recommend Graffin's way if you want uh, the, the, the precise version. Right, so genes are our archetypal replicators, and organisms are our archetypal vehicles. But are there others? Perhaps. 
I haven't time in this lecture to spell out possible examples of alternatives. The best candidates of non-genetic replicators I can think of are computer viruses, chain letters, and memes. Memes are units of cultural inheritance which have uh, rather revolting phenotypes like baseball hats turned back to front. The point is that they spread through populations like an epidemic of chickenpox, um, and uh, they have a similar kind of epidemiological time course. Uh, and insofar as one can hypothetically imagine the equivalent of a gene whose phenotype is the reverse baseball cap, I call it a meme. But in any case, these, these lie outside the domain of conventional biology, and I'll say no more about them. As for vehicles, alternative vehicles, all members of our hierarchy on the left of the slide, above the individual, are at least theoretically candidates for vehicles of natural selection, and many of them have actually been advocated as units of a kind of higher level natural selection. I don't think they're plausible, but that's where they belong if they belong anywhere at all. Species and other higher levels in the hierarchy of life can't be said to have adaptations for their own survival in the same way as it's rather plausible to say that individuals have. The survival of a species is an incidental consequence of the survival of the individuals that comprise it. Nevertheless, there is an illusion of design which we notice at a higher level, the level of species diversity. It's not so powerful as the illusion of design at the individual level, but it's there nevertheless. Design seems to reappear in the disposition of species themselves, in their arrangement into communities and ecosystems, in the dovetailing of species with species in the habitats which they share. There's a pattern in the intricate jigsaw of a rainforest or a coral reef, which leads people to preach disaster if one component should be taken out, uh, should be destroyed or allowed to go extinct. And this gives rise to the sort of rhetoric of earth goddesses and Gaia and things like that. And without giving in to that kind of hyperbole, there admittedly is a, a weak illusion of design at the com community level. is a convincing vehicle because its parts harmonize together to achieve a common end. And that's rather like the species in a rainforest or a coral reef harmonizing together, coexisting together, not because they're being selected as a unit, which would be a fallacious way to look at it, but because uh, natural selection within one species favors those individuals who survive in the presence of the other species. is a similar harmonious unit because its parts harmonize to achieve a common end. A cheetah has the teeth of a carnivore, the claws of a carnivore, the eyes, ears, nose, brain of a carnivore. 
leg muscles that are suitable for chasing meat, guts that are primed to digest it. Its parts are choreographed in a dance of carnivorous unity. Every sinew and cell of a big cat has meat eater inscribed through its very texture. And we can be sure that this extends deep into the biochemistry as well. The corresponding parts of the antelope are equally unified with each other, but to different ends. Guts designed to digest plant roughage would be ill-served by claws and instincts designed to catch prey, and vice versa. A hybrid between a cheetah and an antelope, even if it were genetically possible, might be able to run very fast, but otherwise it would fall flat on its evolutionary face. Tricks of the trade can't be cut from one and pasted into another. Their compatibility is with other tricks of the same trade. Actually, in passing, it, it is a remarkable consequence of the universality of the genetic code that some tricks of the trade can be cut from one and pasted into the other. And it's th things like cutting out an antifreeze gene from a fish and pasting it into a tomato, sorry, tomato, um, which um, stops it from, from freezing in the winter. And uh, I, I suspect that uh, a lot of the gut suspicion of genetically modified organisms, which we certainly have in Britain, I think probably more so than you have here, um, a lot of that gut hostility would disappear if people really understood the universality of the genetic code. It really is like borrowing a subroutine from somebody's computer program and pasting it into your own computer program because you happen to need that job done. You need a square root calculating in your rocket launching program, so you copy and paste a square root routine which somebody wrote for a financial planning program. And because a square root is a square root is a square root, it works. And that's rather similar to taking a fish gene and splicing it into a, to a tomato. But to back, back to, the, to the main point, uh, genes that make carnivorous teeth flourish in a gene pool containing genes that make carnivorous guts and carnivorous brains, but not in a gene pool for herbivorous guts and brains. Genes for making the front end of a horse flourish in the presence of genes for making the back end of a horse. Horse gene pools become cooperatives, gangs of selfish cooperators, and so separately do the gene pools of all other species. Does the same argument apply at the community level? In a sense. At, a, at the community level, an area that lacks carnivorous species experiences something similar to a human economy's gap in the market. Carnivorous species that enter the area find themselves flourishing. But if the area is a remote island where there aren't any carnivorous species, or if a recent mass extinction has devastated the land and created a gap in the market, then you can expect in, that in some at present herbivorous or omnivorous species, certain individuals who switch and become gradually more specialist in becoming carnivores will have an advantage. And after a long enough period, specialist carnivorous species will descend from omnivorous or herbivorous ancestors, and this has happened uh, frequently. 
carnivores flourish in the presence of herbivores, and herbivores flourish in the, same, in the presence of plants, what about the other way around? Do plants flourish in the presence of herbivores? Do herbivores flourish in the presence of carnivores? Do animals and plants need enemies in order to flourish? Well, not in the straightforward sense that's suggested by the rhetoric of some ecological activists. No creature normally benefits from being eaten. But there is a sense, it, there is some sense in this. Grasses that can withstand being cropped better than rival plants really do flourish in the presence of grazers on the principle of my enemy's enemy is my friend. And something like the same story might be told of some animal victims of parasites and predators, though here the story is more complicated. It is still misleading to say that a community needs its parasites and predators, like a polar bear needs its liver or its teeth. But the enemy's enemy principle does lead to something like the same result. It can be right to see a community of species as a kind of balanced entity, which is potentially threatened by removal of any of its parts. This idea of community, as made up of lower level units that flourish in the presence of each other, pervades life. Even within the single cell, the principle applies. Most animal cells are communities of hundreds or thousands of bacteria which have become so comprehensively integrated into the smooth working of the cell that their bacterial origins have only recently become understood. Mitochondria, once free-living bacteria, are as essential to the workings of our cells as our cells are to them. Mitochondria are the little cellular organelles which uh, do the um, respiratory metabolism in our cells, and they were once bacteria. This is a diagram of the uh, hypothetical but now increasingly accepted evolution of the eukaryotic cell. Bacteria, the, the, the red ones indicate mitochondria, were once upon a time separate aerobic bacteria uh, using oxygen to respire, and they were incorporated into another kind of cell, the, uh, another kind of prokaryotic host, to form a joint undertaking. And more controversially, spirochetes, another kind of bacterium, were incorporated according to Margulis's theory, which I think is not particularly widely accepted, although the mitochondria theory is very widely accepted. And finally, uh, chloroplasts, um, those organelles in plant cells which are responsible for photosynthesis, were once upon a time separate bacteria, photosynthesizing bacteria, and they too were incorporated. This is a picture of the inside of the gut of a termite. Plant eaters, like termites and uh, ruminants, are themselves largely incapable of digesting cellulose, or wood in the case of termites. But they're very good at finding and chewing plants. So the gap in the market, filled by their plant-filled guts, is exploited by symbiotic microorganisms, both bacteria and protozoa, who possess the necessary biochemical expertise to digest the plant material efficiently. 
Creatures with complementary skills flourish in each other's presence. Both the termites and their symbionts benefit from this. Well, to summarize so far, what may be called the well-designed watch model, which is pretty good for the organism, turns out to be momentarily persuasive, but ultimately a little bit misleading for the ecosystem. The truer vision of the ecosystem is one of separate parts mutually flourishing in each other's presence. The difference is whether you see the mutually supportive set of entities, the set of entities which are going around together and which are benefiting from each other's presence as selected as a unit, which I don't, or whether you see them as selfish entities who flourish in the presence of each other as selfish entities. And that's the crucial difference that I want to get across. You have a group of entities, organisms, or whatever they might be, entities at different levels, who are observed to be cooperative, and you can think of them as having been selected, in a Darwinian sense, as a cooperative unit, and that, in my view, is wrong, or you can think of them as having each been separately selected, but in the presence of the other, which creates the illusion of a, a cooperative unit. Another picture of a termite gut. But now for the sting in the tail. My final task will be to persuade you that even the organism, too, fits this second model. Small units flourish in each other's presence, and larger units of apparently harmonious clockwork rise up as a result. And in this case, the harmony is so intricately tuneful that everybody is immediately persuaded by what I am calling the well-designed watch model. But the model of small units flourishing in each other's presence is ultimately what underlies it. And the small units in this case are the genes. We should already be persuaded, we should already be prepared for this by the example of mitochondria, which started out as separate bacteria, but which, which became so intimately incorporated into the eukaryotic cell that it was only recently that anybody even realized they had ever been bacteria. It's that vision that I now want to extend to its ultimate conclusion, which is to say that all our genes, all the genes in our ordinary genome, not just our mitochondrial genome, are to be regarded in the same way as symbiotic, mutually parasitic, selfish cooperators. As a prelude to persuading you of this, I need to introduce the doctrine which I call the extended phenotype. Organisms are vehicles for their genes, but there didn't have to be organisms. If genes could find a better way to propagate themselves than clubbing together to make large organisms, they would adopt it. And some of them have. 
they're responsible for viruses and similar minute packages of parasitic DNA code. They found a way of breaking out of the discipline of making a large cooperative individual uh, and spreading, as it were, sideways. Now to the extended phenotype. The structures on the right of the slide are the houses of Cadis larvae. The caddis fly is a fairly nondescript kind of insect, um, but its larvae are most certainly not nondescript. Uh, a caddis fly larva builds for itself a house in which it lives made of stone or sticks or snail shells or leaves. Some uh, materials, different species pick up different things and glue them together and form a snugly fitting house in some cases of great elegance, as you see there. These houses are obviously Darwinian adaptations. They serve the same function as the Taritella shells that you see at the bottom left of the slide. They are protection for the animal. In the case of the Taritella shells, they are secreted by the animal itself and they are, and without any doubt, part of the phenotype, the phenotype, the manifestation of the snail's genes, in this case to protect it, just as the snail's foot or the snail's eye is. Similarly, the caddis, some of its genes influence the, uh, the eye of the caddis, the mouth parts of the caddis, the legs of the, of the, of the caddis. But others of its genes influence the stone house. They do so via the building behavior of the lava itself. But it is the house which is to be thought of as the adaptation. It's the house which is to be thought of as the tool by which these particular genes, adopting the genes I view, these particular genes lever themselves into the next generation. Genes for making uh, sharp mouth parts in a caddis lever themselves into the next generation by building those sharp mouth parts, and that's conventional, nobody has any problem with that. But there are other genes whose phenotypic effect is to influence the shape of the stones of the house, or the size of the stones, or the color of the stones, or the hardness of the stones. Nobody's ever done the necessary genetic research to know that that's true. But it must be true if Darwinism is true, and if these are Darwinian adaptations. Because you can't have a Darwinian adaptation without the natural selection of genes which influence, which affect the uh, variation in the character under discussion. So we've taken the first step towards understanding the extended phenotype. The phenotypes by which genes survive don't have to be part of the living body. They can be made of stone. The caddis house fits snugly around the caddis body, like a snail shell around a snail. And so it's relatively easy to think of it as part of the insect's phenotype. What about a bowerbird? Look, at, look first at the bird on the right, which is a bird of paradise. Um, it, it, it's gorgeously coloured and shaped um, as an adaptation to attract females. This is a male. Uh, and um, in the case of the bower bird on the left, it's not particularly gorgeously coloured, but its bower is. It's, it transfers the 
female attracting phenotype from its feathers to its bower, which is a structure built of grass, decorated by various things like, in this case, berries, red berries, uh, in other cases, beer bottle tops, whatever it can find, which are bright and decorative. Now we make the same argument as for the caddis. Functionally, the bar is doing exactly the same job for the bowerbird male as the feathers are for the bird of paradise male. Both of them have been enhanced and enlarged and shaped by natural selection, in this case the variety which Darwin called sexual selection. As with the caddis house, therefore, there must be or have been genes affecting bower shape, bower size, perhaps the colour of the uh, decoration, etc. In exactly the same way as there must have been genes for the bird of paradise, feather colours, etc. Otherwise, natural selection would have had nothing to work on, and the adaptation could not have evolved. So we've taken our second step towards the extended phenotype thesis. The phenotypes by which genes survive don't have to be in contact with the living body. They can be in another place. The bower bird is not necessarily inside his bower. And our third step is to show that the phenotype may not only be in another place, but in a very di distant place. Beavers build dams to make lakes, and it's the lake which is the phenotype that's useful in this case for various reasons I won't go into. Once again, the lake is clearly a Darwinian adaptation. It must have evolved by Darwinian selection, and therefore there must have been genes for lake morphology, lake size. So the phenotype by which a gene survives may extend for many acres and have no connection, no physical attachment to the body of the beaver at all. Of course, the building behavior of the beaver is the proximal route by which the genes affect lake size and lake shape, but that's nothing new because anything else about the beaver, like its tail or its teeth, are not the immediate consequence of DNA. They're the consequence of DNA after a long, complicated chain of causation, beginning with protein synthesis and going through uh, very complicated interactions in the process of embryogenesis, which needn't concern us. The building of the dam is simply an extension of embryogenesis, in this case the embryogenesis of the lake. So that's our third step in the argument towards the extended phenotype. The fourth step is to realize that the effective phenotype of a gene can actually be not in stone or in the lake of a water, but in another organism. There are parasitic flukes which live in snails and have a strange effect on the shells of the snail hosts. Not actually this kind of snail, I couldn't find a picture of the right kind of snail, so I'm using this kind of snail as a purely diagrammatic illustration. Now, what these parasites do 
is they cause the snail to have a thicker shell than it normally would. It's a commonplace that parasites have a debilitating effect upon their hosts. If a parasite caused the snail shell to be thinner than it normally would be, uh, we wouldn't be surprised. But it's thicker. What are we to make of this? What I'm about to say is hypothetical. I think it's plausible. Presumably, there is an optimal thickness of shell from the point of view of the snail. If the shell is too thin, then the snail is vulnerable. What, after all, is the shell for but to protect it? But it's also possible for the shell to be too thick. And the most likely cost of being too thick is an economic one. Nature is a stern economist, and any individual snail who built a shell which was a bit thicker than the optimum might be better protected from predators, but it would pay the price in using up resources in building the shell, which could have been used up for other things. So it looks as though what the parasite is doing is forcing the snail to shift its phenotype, its shell thickness, along the continuum, away from the optimum, in the direction of being too thick thereby costing the snail something in its own internal economy. From the fluke's point of view, the optimal shell thickness will be different. The, if it's too thin, once again, the fluke is vulnerable to predation. From the fluke's point of view, the snail shell, the shell of the shared phenotype, is protecting it from predators, just as it's protecting the snail. So, from the fluke's point of view, it doesn't want the shell to be too thin. But, from the fluke's point of view, it doesn't mind, or at least it's plausible, that it would have a different, uh, that it would shift its optimum towards a thicker shell. Because it doesn't, is not faced by the same economies. From the snail's point of view, the resources that could, the, the resources that are put into thickening the shell could have been put into reproduction to making more snails. But the fluke has no interest in the snail making more snails. It only has an interest in the fluke making more flukes. And so from its point of view, the optimum shell thickness is likely to be thicker than the optimum from the snail's point of view. And you can, of course, rephrase all of that from the gene's eye view. You can say that genes in the snail are affecting shell thickness, and natural selection on those genes is optimizing that shell thickness at the same time as genes in the fluke are impinging upon the very same phenotype. This is the rationale of the extended phenotype we've already met. Genes in the fluke are having phenotypic expression in the shell of the snail, of the host, and they are pushing it towards a thicker optimum. The end result is presumably some kind of compromise between the two. The point of this speculation is not that it has to be true, but that it illustrates the principle that 
genes in one organism may have phenotypic expression in the body of another. It's the caddis house all over again, but now the house that is surrounding the fluke is not made of stone, it's made of snail. It's animate, but it belongs to a different individual organism. Now, I hope that the uh, idea of the extended phenotype, as I've, ex as I've gradually developed it step by step, is having the indirect effect of undermining the centrality of the organism as vehicle. I started out by saying the organism is a vehicle and making a rather clear distinction between um, replicator and vehicle, and the organism was the, the unit of action, the unit of decision, um, the, the coherent unit that actually behaves and does things on behalf of its genes. It is a coherent vehicle. But now, having been through our steps of argument towards the extended phenotype, you may be feeling, well, perhaps the, organ perhaps the organism is not such a discrete vehicle after all. Perhaps the, the very idea that there has to be a vehicle defined as a discrete unit of action is starting to wear a bit thin. The genes I view doesn't care which organism is which. There is no fundamental difference between fluke DNA and snail DNA. DNA is just DNA. Replicators are just replicators. They seize whatever reins of phenotypic power are available to them. There's no particular reason, other than practical expediency, to prefer to manipulate the phenotype of one's own organism rather than that of any other organism. The culmination of the argument is that adaptive phenotypes are in principle distributed, not discreetly packaged up into vehicles at all, but distributed, potentially as widely as the waters of a beaver lake. What then does define a vehicle as discrete? What actually does distinguish fluke genes from snail genes? if they are not fluke-flavoured or snail-flavoured? The answer is that the replicators that belong to one vehicle are defined as that set of replicators which all share the same exit route into the future. Fluke genes may share the snail vehicle temporarily with snail genes and influence its phenotype, but the two sets are destined to part company at reproduction time. They're there for one generation. At reproduction time, they part company and they reproduce in different ways. And this has significant consequences. When a parasite and its host share the same exit route out of the shared host body, out of the shared vehicle, adaptations for the good of the host genes will tend to overlap with and be the same as adaptations for the good of the parasite genes. The dog at the top has a parasite 
which sheds its reproductive propagules, whatever they are, its eggs or whatever, inside the eggs of, or the reproductive propagules of the host of the dog. This means that whatever is good for the genes of the host is also good for the genes of the parasite and vice versa. The more so, the more complete is the integration of the reproductive exit routes of the two from the shared host phenotype. If there is an optimal coat length, an optimal tooth sharpness, an optimal amount of muscle given over to thigh, to the, to, to the thighs for running from the point of view of the host genes, then because the parasite genes also want the host to survive and reproduce, get a mate, have offspring, because the parasite genes are going to be in the offspring of the host, then to the extent that the parasite genes influence the host phenotype, they will all be pulling together. They'll influence it in the same way. So this dog is a healthy-looking dog because its parasite, its ge the genes of its parasite agree with the genes of the host in what is an optimal dog. The dog at the bottom has a different kind of parasite. It also lives in the dog. But it passes on to the next generation, not in the reproductive propagules of the dog, not in the eggs of the dog or the baby of the dog. It passes to the next generation in the saliva of the dog. It passes to the next parasite generation by getting the dog to bite another animal and inject it in the form of saliva into the bloodstream of the next animal. Because its root into, the into its own next generation is non-overlapping with the root of the dog's genes into the next generation, the optimum dog phenotype, the optimum host phenotype, is different for the two sets of genes, and this is a very unhealthy dog. Well, you probably already jumped to the conclusion that I'm about to jump to. Parasites that share the same exit route into the future become cooperative. Natural selection bears upon them in the same kind of way. They, they all share the same optimum phenotype. And that, of course, is what all an animal's own genes are anyway. They're simply a set of genes, a set of replicators, which share the same exit route into the future. Dog genes and dog genes share an exit route into the future, just as dog genes and parasite genes, in the case of the upper healthy dog, do. And for exactly the same reason as the upper dog in the slide is healthy, so a dog that has no parasites is healthy, because all its own genes are behaving in a cooperative way for exactly the same reason. So my conclusion is that we should think of the organism insofar as it is a unitary vehicle constructed by a set of cooperative genes as the same kind of thing as an organism that has a parasite with a similar exit route to the future. The organism is defined as 
a set of phenotypic characteristics which could have been separate, which are held together as a unit because the replicators that put them together are a mutually supporting gang of fundamentally selfish cooperators. Thank you very much. Till people who are leaving have left because they can't, we can't hear. No, we, we haven't had it yet. Perhaps you could have the question now. question is, do I approve of, of free market eugenics, but by which I, I take it is meant um, the, uh, the, the, the um, coming uh, capacity to choose what kind of children you have, um, ordering a good musician or a good mathematician or a good football player or whatever it is. Um, I... This is, a, this is a moral question, it's an ethical question. Um, I'm no more qualified to answer moral or ethical questions than anybody else. Um, I don't have the same instant revulsion from such things as just about everybody else seems to have. Um, there, I think the problem with eugenics is, is historically partly that, um, well, Hitler. Um, <laughs> um, before Hitler, it's astonishing how, how widespread um, eugenics, eugenicists were. And nowadays, after Hitler, you can't find a eugenicist if you try, hardly. Um, and that's obviously for very good reasons. Um, negative eugenics, the, the um, ensuring that you don't have uh, children with muscular dystrophy and other distressing genetic complaints, obviously people have, have less problem with. I think some people even have problems with that. Um, positive eugenics, where you positively order up a baby of a certain kind, people do have problems with. Um, one thing I would say to, um, to, to reassure people who are worried about this, um, 
positive eugenics has been practiced for farm animals and domestic dogs, etc., for a very long time with dramatic results. If you think that a, a Pekingese is a genetically modified dog, a wolf, genetically modified wolf, um, and most of the food we eat has been modified by artificial selection over many centuries. During that time when Pekingeses were being bred from wolves and the wild cabbage was being turned into Brussels sprouts and cauliflowers, we could at any time have done the same thing to humans. We, the human species, could have at any time done the same thing on humans. And astonishingly, we didn't. Um, we are we're still pretty much genetically um, the way we were as wild animals. And if we haven't done it for the past centuries, when we could have done, it's not obvious why we should suddenly start doing it now, that we can do it by genetic manipulation. However, the possibility is there, and my general reaction to any questions of moral philosophy or ethics is, who does it harm? I'm not saying it doesn't harm anybody, but we need to be told who it harms. We mustn't, it mustn't just assume that because it's new, because it hasn't done before, been done before, therefore it's automatically bad. Um, when one talks about ordering up a child who's going to be a good musician, which is repugnant to some people, it's not immediately clear to me why that's so much more repugnant than sending a child off to music lessons in order to teach it to be a good <laughs> musician. Um, and we all accept that parents are ambitious for their children and uh, desperately want their child to follow in the father's footsteps, whatever it is, and become a mathematician or a biologist or a philosopher or a farmer, whatever it is, and move heaven and earth to give the child the right nurture for that career. Um, and it, it's not completely obvious to me why it's any more repugnant to do it by um, asking a doctor to give you good musical genes or good mathematical genes. Yes? Would you discuss examples of genes in our genome which are in a middle situation being in general, in general having the same answer as the rest of the genes, but not always? Are there examples of are there any examples of genes which in general have the same exit path uh, from the organism, but which, uh, which sometimes don't? I, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to know that. It, it seems to me very likely that viruses um, are, and, and other kinds of parasitic DNA, are escapees from um, regulated orthodox genomes. I think that's pretty widely accepted, that in many cases they are. But you're talking about, as it were, catching one in the act of, of, of breaking out and becoming a virus, uh, becoming um, uh, separate. I suppose the nearest I could, could come to answering your question is to point to the phenomenon or phenomena such as meiotic drive. Uh, meiotic drive genes, or segregation distorters, are genes whose phenotypic effect, the equivalent of making eyes blue, whatever it is, whose phenotypic effect is to change the probability that they themselves will find themselves in a gamete, a sperm or an egg. Normally, as you know, uh, the process of meiosis, the cell division process of meiosis, which makes sperms or eggs out of diploid mother cells, equally apportions half, I mean, each, each, gives each gene half a chance of getting into each gamete. 
So when you do your ordinary Mendelian calculations, you make the assumption that a gene has a 50% chance of getting into a given one of your sperms or eggs. But a segregation distorter is a gene whose phenotypic effect is actually to manipulate the process of making gametes such that it itself, the meiotic drive gene, the segregation distorter gene, is more likely than 50% to find itself in a sperm or egg. And you can see that a gene like that is, is beginning to be a, a rebel, beginning to be a breakaway, beginning to be an outlaw, because it has a greater chance of spreading through the population than it should have. Uh, it's an anarchic gene. And if there were too many segregation distorters or meiotic drive genes in our genome, then the harmonious cooperative that is the vehicle would break down. And it's been suggested that the genome may be a, a graveyard of ex-meiotic drive genes, which, have, which arose originally, spread rapidly, and were then suppressed by natural selection, working on the rest of the genome to um, destroy them and, or, or neutralize them. So I think meiotic drive is the best, is the best answer I can give to your question. Um, yes? Um, not quite sure. Oh, I think I see what you mean. Um, bi biological objects are very complex because of natural selection. Is there a similar kind of natural selection process in physics uh, which has made complex things in physics? Um, well, uh, the, the questioner maybe may have in mind the rather ingenious theory of the physicist Smolin, theoretical physicist, who has proposed a kind of Darwinian selection of universes. Uh, Smolin starts from the observation that uh, some of the facts about our universe, the physical constants and laws, look a bit too good to be true. Uh, if any of them were slightly different, we couldn't be here, and nor could stars, and nor could planets. And this has led some people to think that the universe is a sort of put-up job. Um, Smolin's suggestion is that there are lots of universes, a population of universes, which vary in their laws and constants. Other people have suggested that, but Smolin's additional wrinkle on that theory is that, these, is that universes reproduce themselves in black holes so that the act of birth is, a, is the same as, as making a black hole. And during the act of birth of a new universe, the new uni universe may mutate slightly the laws and constants of the parent universe. And uh, this gives rise, but not once you've got reproduction and heredity, which is what he's postulating, then you have a recipe which almost inevitably leads to Darwinian selection of some kind. And in this case, 
since the act of birth is the same as the act of making black holes, the phenotype that's being selected for in universes is the capacity to make black holes. And that means, uh, for a start, lasting long enough to make stars and lasting uh, long enough to make black holes. And he develops the argument further, but it it is a a rather ingenious way of using um, models of many universes uh, in a Darwinian sense, not just using many universes to say, because there are many universes with different laws and constants, and since we're here, we obviously have to be in one of those universes, however small a minority it is, which is capable of giving rise to us. He goes further and says that actually universes get better by Darwinian selection, where better is defined as having the capacity, it has to be defined thus, but in a Darwinian world, having the capacity to make daughter universes, which incidentally happens to be the right qualities to make stars, planets, and therefore us. The question is, uh, with respect to the, to the codex, because the codex itself, I said it was immaterial, can we think of the unit of selection as being something other than matter or energy? Um, well, in, in, in a sense, the answer is yes, but that would be misleading if it were taken in uh, some sort of mystical way to mean that we are somehow separated from matter or energy. It, it, it's meant in a much more mundane sense than that. Um, suppose a hypothetical gene... For a start, now that we can transcribe the DNA sequences, the codex of a gene doesn't have to reside in DNA at all. It at present resides at this very moment on the computers of the two rival um, teams working on the Human Genome Project. It resides in the printed page in the journal Nature. Um, So the codex is there in printed characters of the pages of Nature. And at any time, those printed characters can be retranslated, transcribed back into DNA. And if the, if the volume of nature sits on a library shelf for a thousand years, in a thousand years' time, somebody can pull that volume off the shelf and put it into a DNA sequence, and that gene will live again. So the codex is immaterial in the sense that it doesn't mind which of many varieties of material it sits in at any one time. But it's not immaterial in the sense that it can be completely free from any contact with the material world. Is the notion of the replicator tied to nucleic acids? No, because um, I um, postulated the meme for baseball hats worn backwards as another kind of replicator. So um, I think it's important to understand that the idea of a replicator is more general than the idea of DNA. DNA is the 
archetypal replicator, the one we understand best and the one that underlies um, life at present as we know it on this planet. The questioner asks whether there could have been some other replicator that uh, preceded DNA, and I, I, I think that I think yes. Um, chemist Graham Cairn Smith has put the case very well for what he calls a genetic takeover. Um, he very clearly understands the importance of replication as a unit of selection and as the fundamental basis of any kind of Darwinian process. There always has to be a replicator. And if there's life on other planets, the one thing you can be absolutely sure about is that there will be something equivalent to DNA. There will be some kind of replication going on. But Cairn Smith makes the point that DNA is what he calls a high-tech replicator. It requires elaborate cellular machinery in order to do its replication. It requires the equivalent of a pretty great Xerox machine to, to do the copying. And that can't have just jumped into existence de novo. And so before DNA, there must have been some forerunner. And the forerunner had to be a lot simpler. It had to be simple enough to arise spontaneously uh, from ordinary chemical interactions. And uh, in Cairn Smith's view, DNA is a late takeover. It took over the machinery that had been built up by an earlier generation of natural selection uh, programmed by an earlier generation of replicators. As to what that, those earlier replicators are, Cairn Smith's own suggestion hasn't found much favor with other scientists. It is that it's crystals of mineral inorganic clay. Um, some people favor an RNA world preceding a DNA world. It's not clear to me whether RNA itself is too high-tech to have sprung spontaneously into existence. I think it's a borderline case. Um, so maybe the genetic takeover was from RNA to DNA, maybe it was from something else, which we don't know, to RNA to DNA. Uh, we maybe shall never know. Um, maybe the best we can hope for is a very plausible theory. But if it's sufficiently plausible, that'll be good enough for me. Yes? Yeah, I can't see because the lights are down. Um, is it correct to say that um, natural selection affects the, the physical differently than it does affect the replicators or the genes? Or maybe one can say that natural selection does not work in the genetic level as it does on the organism level. I think I missed a crucial word in the middle of that. It, it, it ended up as, does natural selection work differently on the replicator level than on the organism level? That's question. Um, well, no. I mean, it, it's, it's the same process. It's, it only works at the replicator level if you're talking about that which survives or doesn't survive because only replicators have the capacity to survive with sufficient high fidelity to be called survival after a large number of generations. The codical information in DNA or any other replicator will be with us in thousands, even millions of generations, and therefore the difference between a successful one and an unsuccessful one 
really counts. The world becomes full of successful ones and empty of unsuccessful ones. But organisms aren't like that. Organisms don't replicate at all. Organisms merely reproduce and merely uh, pass on their replicators. And so the natural selection of organisms and the natural selection of replicators are two different aspects of the same process. They're not different processes. Um, because the lights are down, I can only see in the front. Could we have the lights up a bit more? Is anybody complaining? Uh, one or two more. That's one. Yeah. Here, a couple of people. Yes. I have a question. Um, thanks for coming to speak to us both times. It's been interesting to hear how the genes actually contain the codex, which is the information. And in your last lecture on Wednesday, you said that basically the information in the genome is a measure of where the animal has been, so that that information in the genome can be collected from the environment that that organism experienced over time. Do you think that the kind of complex molecular systems we study here at Berkeley actually arise from the environment step-by-step through natural selection? Is that the only explanation that you can give for things like the bacteria flagella and the complex uh, Xerox machines or genes that you described? Because uh, based on like the front page of the New York Times this Sunday, there seems to be another camp of scientists that say that this information may have come from an intelligent design as opposed to just from natural science. <laughs> the school of thought that you're referring to doesn't seem to deign to publish its ideas in the ordinary peer-reviewed press for the very good reason that they probably would not get published. Um, the school of thought themselves take the view that this is uh, discrimination against them. Others take the view that their papers would not be worth publishing and therefore would not pass muster in the standard um, gauntlet of peer review. The idea that's being proposed is that certain features of cellular physiology, like the bacterial flagellum, are what's been called irreducibly complex, which means that they must have been made by a divine designer. The form of the logic is like this. I, the individual writing the paper, writing the book, am personally unable to think of a way in which the bacterial flagellum might have arisen by gradual degrees. Therefore, I declare by fiat that it is irreducibly complex. Therefore, God must have done it. Hodgkin and Huxley worked many years ago and got the Nobel Prize for it on the, how the nerve impulse is propagated along nerves, along axons. It was a very hard piece of work involving very difficult mathematics and they worked and worked and they solved it and they got the Nobel Prize. Imagine the following dialogue. I say Huxley... <laughs> The nerve impulse is a really difficult problem. I can't see how it's done. No, Hodgkin. I agree, it really is hard. 
and I can't face trying to solve all those differential equations. <laughs> Let's just write a paper to Nature saying the nerve impulse is too difficult, we don't understand how it was done, therefore it must propagate along the axon by divine impulsion. <laughs> The research strategy of these so-called intelligent design people is lazy and defeatist and not part of the scientific method. The scientific method is to say we have a problem, it is difficult, we can't see the solution at present, so let's work harder at finding out what it is. Please join me in thanking Professor Dawkins for a couple of very well-presented lectures. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.